listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. This is from uh, Matthew 1, 1 through 6. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashim, and Nashim the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz and Rahab by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. I bathe slowly following the ritual of menstrual, of menstrual cleansing. As I wash away the mess and the pain that visits me monthly, I think of my foremothers and my connection to Eve as we each bear the pain that allows us to bear life. I'm summoned by the king. The look in his eye frightens me. As he touches me, I close my eyes and think of Uriah, longing for my husband. I am silent and do not speak against his power. It hurts, but I do not fight, praying that it will end quickly. I walk home briskly, feeling ashamed and alone. I tell no one. He is the king. I am small, insignificant, voiceless, a woman. I am pregnant, but is not my husband's. I send word quietly to the king, fearful, but hoping he may have a solution, dreading the day my child becomes visible. Uriah is dead. I suspect, but do not know for sure what happened, only that my life is gone. I remain silent. Only God knows the depth of my sorrow. The prophet condemns what has happened, and even in this, I am reminded that I am property, passed from one man to another, like a sheep. My child dies before I can meet him, and I mourn. I mourn a child who has reminded me of my rape and death of my husband. I struggle to find hope in the midst of my anger and my sadness. Time passes, and I fill my role as one of the king's wives. But I am hollow, broken. We conceive again. As I hold my new child, I feel hope. I resolve to teach him, guide him, to avoid the sins of his father, to show him love compassion and wisdom, how to use power responsibly. In this, I find my voice. Let's hear it for our Bathsheba. <clears throat> Thank you, Paige. Thank you for that song, too, Paige and Lex. That was awesome. <clears throat> so how's everybody doing this morning? Good, awesome. <clears throat> we are in the fourth Sunday of Advent, which means that this is it. Christmas is in three days. This is the last Sunday in the Advent teaching series for 2019. You all have made it. Congratulations. <laughs> you, don't, you can clap for that, I guess, if you want. 
<clears throat> and you haven't made it yet, you still have to get through this one. Um, <clears throat> for the last four Sundays, we've been looking at um, the four women from the Old Testament who are mentioned in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, these great, 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 great grandmas of Jesus. We've been digging into their stories, getting to know them, and discovering, I think, some really uh, compelling stuff. We've called this series Dangerous Women, because for most of church history, all four of these ladies have been viewed in a somewhat negative light, especially within the church. Um, They've been viewed as having some sort of baggage, being dangerous, some sort of shame or bad reputation attached to themselves. But as we've seen with each one of these stories, all of these dangerous women are actually incredibly strong and courageous women. And their stories point us to Jesus in, this, in some really beautiful and surprising ways. And today we're looking at Bathsheba. Now, by, so, by show of hands, how many people are familiar with this story? How many people have heard of the story of David and Bathsheba? It's about half of us. That's a good number. Um, this is a pretty notorious story, right, for those of you who know it. This is the story of King David's fall from grace. David was this great hero from the Bible. Uh, He's called a man after God's own heart. He's the guy who killed Goliath when he was a little kid. Uh, He was one of the greatest kings in Israel's history, wrote a number of the Psalms. And this story is the beginning of his downfall. A downfall that often gets blamed on Bathsheba. The story goes something like this. See if uh, if this sounds familiar. One day, David sees this beautiful woman bathing on her rooftop. He finds out her name is Bathsheba, and she's married to one of the soldiers in David's army. So David and Bathsheba get together. They have an affair. The affair leads to an unplanned pregnancy, which in turn leads to a murder, which eventually leads to the unraveling of David. Does that sound pretty familiar? Is that the story you're all familiar with? Yeah. It's a super dark story. There's a lot of shame associated with this story and with Bathsheba in particular. Um, You might have noticed in the genealogy when Matthew gets to Bathsheba, he doesn't even mention her by name. All the other women we've looked at in this series, Ruth, Tamar, and Rahab, they all get name dropped in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, but not Bathsheba. She's called the wife of Uriah. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. How's that for loaded? David was the father of Solomon by another man's wife. Over the last few weeks, um, I've had a number of conversations with you about uh, this series, a number of one-on-one conversations. uh, Looking at some of these women from the Old Testament has really triggered a lot of really good talks. Um, Folks have seen things like, uh, one person said to me, I've really loved revisiting these old stories. I'm coming to see them in a whole new light, but I don't know what you're going to do with Bathsheba. That lady is bad news. Someone else from our church uh, asked me a really good question about a week or so ago. They were like, I just want to know what Bathsheba was doing taking a bath on the roof. Like, was that a normal thing to do back then? Was Was that customary? Is that where bathtubs were in ancient Israel on the roof? Which, like, that's... That's a good question. That's a good contextual question. Why was she on the roof? So let's go to the text. That's where I like to start when I explore some of these. 2 Samuel chapter 11, page 248 in your pew Bibles if you want to follow along. It'll also be on the screens. As we read, though, I want you to pay attention to where the characters are located. 
and specifically, who is on the roof, okay? Starting in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all of Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself after her period. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Question. Who is on the roof? Anyone catch it? David, yes, not Bathsheba. David is on the roof. About half of us raised our hands before. Of those of you who are familiar with this story, how many of you have always heard it told as if Bathsheba is on her roof? Yeah, that's most of us. It's how we remember the story, as if Bathsheba is on her roof, bathing out in the open for David's eyes to see. That's how we tend to remember this story. And yet the text says nothing about Bathsheba being on the roof. David is on the roof. We don't actually know where Bathsheba is at the beginning of this story. Uh, The text doesn't tell us. She could be on her roof, although I did look into it, and it was not customary for people to bathe on their roofs. Things have not changed that much in 3,000 years. That would be very weird, so it's highly unlikely. Um, She could have been bathing outside behind her house, kind of in a private area out of view of the street, but still a place that you could be seen from the roof of the king's palace. That's possible. And she could have been bathing inside her house. And it's possible that David saw her through a window. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us where she is. But it does tell us what she's doing. Bathsheba is performing the monthly purification ritual that Jewish law required of women after they had their periods. This isn't just a bath. This is a religiously required cleansing she's doing. So at the beginning of this story, Bathsheba is exactly where she's supposed to be, doing exactly what she's supposed to be doing. She's doing what any good law-abiding Jewish woman would be doing at this time of the month. But David is not where he's supposed to be. It's the time of year when kings go off to battle, but David is home on his rooftop, sneaking a peek at the ladies in the village below. He happens to see Bathsheba. The king likes what he sees, and so he summons her to his quarters, and he has sex with her. That sounds an awful lot like rape to me. This isn't an affair. There's no uh, hint of a romance or a love story in this, uh, in this passage. David doesn't court this married woman. They don't sneak off together. This famous um, author of the Psalms, he doesn't, he doesn't sing for Bathsheba or play his harp or write her a poem. He sees her. He has her brought to him. He has sex with her, and then he sends her away. 
The text doesn't tell us whether or not Bathsheba consented. Unfortunately, that's not a question that was asked much back then. And the word rape isn't used in this story, but neither is the word adultery. In fact, the text is suspiciously vague in describing this encounter. We've seen throughout this series, the Bible doesn't really putz around when it comes to talking about sex, but it is very vague in describing what exactly happened here. And let's not pretend that Bathsheba would have had much of a say in the matter, one way or another. This is an ancient patriarchal society we're looking at. Bathsheba has no rights. Women in this part of the world, this time in history, were treated more like property than human beings. And oh yeah, this is the king. David's the most powerful man in the entire country. The king doesn't take no for an answer. You don't say no to the king. At the very least, this story is a highly unethical sexual encounter where the power dynamics are way out of whack. And at the worst, it's rape. The woman conceived, she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Let's keep reading verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, that's David's general out in the battlefield, send me Uriah the Hittite. This is Bathsheba's husband. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the people fared and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, You've just come from a journey. Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah remain in booths in tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do such a thing. David's trying to cover his tracks here. He hatches a plan. Bathsheba's husband is off fighting David's war. So David sends for him, hoping that Uriah will go home, sleep with his wife, and assume that the child is his. When that doesn't work in the next section of the story, David gets Uriah drunk. We're not going to read that part. But he gets him drunk, hoping that that might do the trick, put him in the mood. But Uriah still won't go home. And so as a last-ditch effort, David sends Uriah back into battle with a sealed note for the general, ordering that Uriah be put on the front line and left to die. And he does. Now, I've been in church my entire life. I've heard this story talked about, preached on, taught in Sunday school classes at least a dozen times. And every time I've heard it, I've heard it described as if David and Bathsheba coordinated. Like there was this conspiracy they hatched together to cover things up, which ended in the death, really the murder, of Bathsheba's husband. But reading back through this story, Bathsheba's nowhere to be found. David doesn't conspire with her. She isn't in on it. Uriah doesn't even go back home to see his wife. After verse 5, when when, uh, Bathsheba tells David she's pregnant, 
she doesn't pop up in the story again until the very end. Verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. She wept for him. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The next time we hear from Bathsheba in the story, she's mourning the death of her husband. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Not the thing Bathsheba did, or the thing David and Bathsheba coordinated together. The text emphasizes it's David who's in the wrong here, And yet somehow for 3,000 years, we've remembered him as a hero and Bathsheba as the villain. So David takes Bathsheba as a wife, one of his many wives. They have a son, and the child dies when he's only seven days old. And the observers at the time declare that the death of this child is God's punishment of King David. The text doesn't say how Bathsheba felt in this situation. See, I'd argue that Bathsheba is not only the victim of King David, she's the victim of a patriarchal culture, the society that received and recorded this story. I mean, she's not exactly a fleshed-out character, right? The storytellers treat her more like a plot point than a human being. We're never told what she's feeling, what she's thinking. There's no mention of her faith, her relationship to God, except for the fact that she is performing that cleansing ritual at the start of the story. The only line of dialogue she's given in this entire story is, I'm pregnant. But even with this lack of detail, I don't think it's that hard to imagine what she must have been going through. She's very likely been raped. Then her husband is murdered. Then she's brought into the king's harem, marrying her rapist, which was the common practice back then. Then her child dies as punishment, it's believed, for David's sin. And then David is remembered forever as a man after God's own heart, while Bathsheba is the adulterous woman who ruined King David. But what was she doing on the roof? That's what we ask, right? What was she doing bathing next to an open window? What did she think would happen? Or maybe, what was she wearing? Why didn't she tell somebody? Sorry to say, not much has changed in 3,000 years. A lot of times when we come across stories like these in the Bible, stories with violence and patriarchy and terrible violence against women, we cringe at this stuff, and rightfully so. This is is disturbing, heavy stuff. But part of the reason we've got to keep talking about these stories and reading them well is because this stuff keeps happening today. A woman is sexually assaulted on a college campus, and our first question is, what was she wearing? There are wealthy people, wealthy men mostly, 
in incredible positions of power, in government, in business, in the church, who have credible allegations of sexual violence in their past. And yet most of the time that doesn't seem to make a difference. They still retain power and they gain support from people who claim to follow Jesus. Worst case scenario, a, a powerful offender might go away for a couple months and then return and be celebrated as a, a changed man. Politicians, judges, clergy, people in the entertainment industry, Democrats, Republicans, it doesn't seem to make that much of a difference. Not much has changed since the days of Bathsheba and David. And while the church should be at the forefront of this, we should be the ones advocating for victims of sexual violence, holding the powerful accountable. Oftentimes, we lag way behind. Every week in this series, we've tried to connect these women back to Jesus in some way. We've tried to find some sort of a parallel. These are Jesus' ancestors, right? His great-great-grandmas. Certainly, they must pop up in his genealogy for a reason. With Tamar, we talked about salvation coming from unexpected places. Um, Tamar is this widow who's denied justice, so she tricks the man who wronged her into sleeping with her by pretending to be a prostitute. Then she publicly humiliates him, which leads to a change of heart, which in turn ends up saving the ancestors of Israel from starvation. That's in the Bible. Jesus' great-great-grandma did that. Salvation coming from an unexpected place. With Rahab, we talked about these competing streams of violence and nonviolence we find in Scripture. We looked at how Rahab is this grace-filled exception to the rule and how Jesus takes hold of that thread of Rahab and teaches us to reread our entire tradition through a lens of grace. And last week with Ruth, we talked about insiders and outsiders and how faith overcomes all boundaries. Looking at the story of Bathsheba, and reflecting on her experience and how it relates to Jesus, the thing I keep coming back to is suffering. Because I don't know of any other character in, in the Bible who suffers in quite the same way as Bathsheba. Raped, husband murdered, son dead, marked forever with shame. When I think about Bathsheba's suffering, the one character in Scripture who maybe comes close, who has some parallels, interestingly enough, is Jesus. Jesus knew what it was to be denied justice. He knew what it was to have his fate decided by powerful men with unchecked authority. He knew what it was like to have his body broken, to be cursed, and ashamed, to have everyone around him assuming that God had cursed him. And in Jesus, even God knows the pain of losing a child. This is a really dark story, you guys. Like, this story does not have a happy ending. Bathsheba never receives justice. Um, she has another son named Solomon who goes on to become king, arguably, arguably a greater king even than his father, and an ancestor of Jesus. 
But that hardly makes up for everything, all the suffering Bathsheba goes through. And we're not comfortable with darkness. We don't like sitting with darkness, talking about darkness, especially around Christmas time. Christmas is the season of lights and fun and energy. It's a time to sing Christmas carols, eat cookies, which we're going to do in about 15 minutes, and be with friends and family. It's a season of joy. But make no mistake about it, Advent is also a season of darkness. We light candles around this time of year. Our pagan ancestors started lighting candles because it was so dark outside. We hang lights on our houses because there's less light occurring naturally. We cut down evergreen trees and bring them into our homes because everything out in the world looks cold and dead. Advent is a season of darkness. And Christmas isn't about getting out of the darkness. It's about God entering into the darkness. Joining us in the midst of the darkness to shine a light. I don't know what darkness you bring with you this morning. Maybe you have some shame or guilt. Maybe you're in mourning. Maybe this time of year is particularly difficult for you. We all wear our darkness differently. Some of us wear our darkness on our sleeves for everyone to see. Some of us are really good at hiding our darkness, bearing it down, keeping it from people, even ourselves. You might have this sense of shame that hovers around you like a cloud, or you might suffer in silence. But whatever your darkness looks like, whatever you're wrestling with or going through this Advent season, May you find hope in the God of light. May you find hope in Jesus, the light of the world, a man acquainted with suffering, who has the power to invade the darkest places of our stories and shine a light. And may that hope set you free. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.